Good morning. Good afternoon, sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. My name is Tashar Chapman, and I am the captain of the Kasim Seal Orchestra. Is everyone liking the music so far? Is everyone enjoying the music so far? Well, I can't hear you. Let me hear you. Okay. CASM is the acronym for the Caribbean American Sports and Cultural Youth Movement. Okay, and basically we are a not-for-profit youth organization based in Brooklyn. And our main goal is to give the youths of the street, of the ghetto, so to say, uh, something positive to do with their time as well as teaching them something about the cultures of our black people. Okay, um, the first two songs that we did was a calypso by, what's the guy's name again? Uh, oh, a Barbadian guy by Rupee. That's his name. One of the 2000 Calypsos. The second song was a great by um, the great and famous Mr. Robert Nesta Mali, No Woman No Cry. I'm sure you probably recognize that one. Um, we have about three or four more songs that we're going to do for you before the program actually starts. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the show.
Good afternoon. My name is Joanne Mitchell, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to Princeton University's celebration of the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Please join me in expressing our appreciation to the Caribbean American Sports and Youth Steel Orchestra, CASM, and their sponsor, the New York Daily News. We're grateful to Chasm and to their captain, Tushar Chapman, who's arranged for them to come today from New York City. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank the members of the planning committee for the enormous amount of time, energy, and commitment they put into making this program possible. Please join me in recognizing Bob Durkee, who is the Vice President for Public Affairs, Alice Kokoris, who is the Vice Chair of the Committee, and all of the members of the Planning Committee who've made today's celebration possible. Today we honor the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. for his unwavering commitment to the transformation of this nation into one that lived up to the true meaning of its creed. This year we will mark the 40th anniversary of the March on Washington, where Dr. King first articulated his dreams of a beloved community that, believed, that he believed this country could and would become. The challenges that we've faced as a nation since 1963 have brought us much closer to that day when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness a mighty scream. Dr. King did not believe that he would be able to see that day when his aspirations for peace and social and economic justice reigned in this country and around the world, but he did leave us his words and deeds to guide us along the way. So we hope that this program this afternoon will be a fitting tribute to the vision, courage, integrity, and commitment to service that were the hallmarks of Dr. King's leadership of the civil rights movement. This year we will also mark the 35th anniversary of Dr. King's death. On the day before he was killed, Dr. King urged us to rise up with greater readiness, to stand up with greater determination, and to move on in these powerful days of challenge because we have the opportunity to make America a better nation. Those words are as meaningful now as they were 35 years ago. And so this afternoon as we gather to celebrate what would have been Dr. King's 74th birthday, I can think of no more fitting a tribute to his memory that each of us renews our own commitment and resolve to keep his dream alive and to ensure that it becomes a reality. At this time, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the podium Princeton's 19th president, Shirley M. Tillman. She is an internationally known scholar and teacher, and she now lends her extraordinary talents and energy to leading Princeton as we seek to make real our commitments to service to this nation and the world. It is a great pleasure to be able to introduce to you a leader with a strong and abiding commitment to social and economic justice, President Tillman. President Tillman. Good afternoon, everyone. It is really a pleasure uh, for me to be able to join my colleague, Joanne Mitchell, in welcoming you all to Princeton University's celebration of the great Martin Luther King.
It's wonderful to see such a terrific turnout for this occasion. Today, we remember Martin Luther King Jr. as a man who gave visibility and leadership to the civil rights movement in this country, who helped to make major changes in American law and society, who earned respect around the world for his commitments to equality, justice, freedom, and peace, and who received the Nobel Peace Prize in recognition of his enormous contributions, and who ultimately gave his own life for his beliefs. In addition to remembering the man, we also remember his message and rededicate ourselves to the values and the goals that he so eloquently articulated and for which he so passionately fought. Princeton had two opportunities in the early 1960s to hear his message in person. The first of those visits is commemorated by a plaque in the chapel that was placed there at the initiative of our students who continue to be inspired by the timelessness of Dr. King's message. It is exceedingly important that each new generation hear this message and appreciate its continuing power, which is why the essay and the poster contests are such an important element of our own celebration. I would like to offer my heartiest congratulations to students whose essays and posters will be honored today, but I would also like to thank all of the students who demonstrated their own personal commitment to the ideals embodied by Dr. King by participating in the contest. I would also like to express my appreciation to Professor Eddie Glaud for agreeing to give the keynote address today, and I can tell all of you in the audience that you are in for a tremendous treat. To the students and to the leaders of CHASM, what can I say? You're awesome. <laughs> Just awesome. As you were playing in the mood, all I could think of was Glenn Miller rocking in his grave. <laughs> this is their third appearance at our Martin Luther King Day, and uh, what a tremendous uh, addition to the program. Finally, I would like to welcome all of you who have come today from outside the university and for helping us to celebrate uh, Martin Luther King's legacy. I hope that all of you will return to campus often to participate in a variety of academic, cultural, and athletic events that are available to the broader community. And now we have the real pleasure of hearing once again from the CHASM Steel Band.
I am delighted to have this opportunity to present the prizes in this year's poster and essay contests. In both contests, each winner receives a certificate and a t-shirt, like this one, that has on it the design from the winning poster, which is also on the cover of your program. We also present a cash award to those selected for first, second, or third prizes. For our poster contest this year, we asked students in grades four to six to create a billboard that could be installed along a major highway for Martin Luther King Day. You can see some of the spectacular results of the students' hard work and creativity on the stage and in the lobby. And I invite you to take a closer look at the posters at the end of the program. This year we received the largest number of posters ever, 570, from students in 19 different schools. I would like to ask the winners in the poster contest to come forward at this time. This part of it is unrehearsed. Let's give them a hand. Uh, we begin 
um, with 10 students from nine schools who were awarded honorable mention. And uh, let's see if we can get this um, organized here correctly. Um, and Alice, I have to confess, I'm okay. There we are. Um, and I believe the first person on the list um, maybe got here a little late, but I hope he's here now. Yes, okay. So we're going to begin with Jamar Bogle, who's a sixth grader at Holland Middle School in Trenton. Okay, and then we have uh, Sierra Downs, a fifth grader from Science School in Hamilton. Bianca Garcia, a sixth grader from the Crockett Middle School in Hamilton. Ilona Heidvogel, a sixth grader from Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. Zola Hertz-Bunzel, a fourth grader from Littlebrook School in Princeton. Now, if we've got it right, uh, Thomas Johnson, a fifth grader from the Granville Charter School in Trenton, is not here, but we should clap for him anyway. Rocky Lala, a sixth grader from Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. Nicole Levine, a fifth grader from Village School in West Windsor. Michelle Romano, a sixth grader from the Melvin H. Krebs School in East Windsor. And Rosie Yaboa, a fifth grader from the Walter C. Black School in Heightstown. Our second prize winner who receives a $50 award in addition to the certificate and T-shirt is Kate, is Kate Jokobitis, a fifth grader at Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. And our first prize winner uh, receives a cash award of $100. This year's winner was one of two first prize winners last year, the first year in which she was eligible. This year, she wins first prize all by herself. Sofia Hinez, a fifth grader at Indian Fields Elementary School in Dayton. When Sofia submitted her poster, she also submitted the quote, from one of Dr. King's sermons that provided her inspiration. We printed the quote on the back of the t-shirts 
and on the inside cover of your programs. I now want to turn to this year's essay contest winners. But before I do, we temporarily interrupt this broadcast for a few public service announcements. A journey of a thousand miles. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He led a nation out of the darkness of ignorance, armed not with weapons or defenses, but with a sense of how the world should be. He waged a war against the course of a nation. With one vision, he transformed the world. Begins with a single step. Not just on this day should Dr. King be remembered. His spirit and his message should be ever-present in our lives. Despite Dr. King's best efforts to end discrimination, he could not rid the world of all of it. There are still those who choose to disregard character and personality and judge the unimportant. We must overcome the barriers built by generations of petty prejudice. Only then will Dr. Martin Luther King's dream be fully realized. I have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. All of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a symphony of brotherhood. Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Martin Luther King had a dream, but the dream continued with you. Martin Luther King Day. Take a moment and think. Does that mean anything to you? What would the world we share be like without Dr. King's influence? Do you know what he did to bridge the divide between people of different races? Do you know what his message was beyond his famous words, I have a dream? Dr. King envisioned a world in which all races peacefully coexist. Now ask, is that true of today's world? If the answer is no, what can you do to change it? Dr. King's legacy proves every voice counts. Find a way to be heard. What you just heard were, of course, the first prize winning entries in grades 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, 12. This year we asked our essay contestants to create a script for a 30-second radio spot that could be broadcast on Martin Luther King Day. We received a record number of 542 essays from students in 17 schools. You will find excerpts from just over 60 of them in your programs. I would now like to ask the winners in grades 7 8 to come forward. And as they do, let's give them a hug. And as they do, I do want to express our sincere thanks to Matt Stanton of the Princeton University class of uh, 2005 the production manager at WPRB, who did all of the recording and mixing for the three spots you just heard, and several of our colleagues in the communications office who turned these scripts into spots.
We've included a CD of the three spots in the folders of the three first prize winners. So in grades seven and eight, let me begin with honorable mentions. Um, and they are um, Evie Cox, an eighth grader at the Pennington School in Pennington. Peter Day, a seventh grader at the American Boy Choir School in Princeton. Basola Egby, a, an eighth grader at the Chapin School in Princeton. Eleanor Hayes Larson, an eighth grader at the Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. And Matthew Machalski, an eighth grader at the Crockett Middle School in Hamilton. We awarded two third prizes in this category. The first is to Rachel Philo, a seventh grader at Melvin H. Krebs Middle School in East Windsor. The other third prize goes to Tara Phillips, an eighth grader at Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. Our second prize winner is Ricky Waller, grade eight, Melvin H. Krebs Middle School in East Windsor. And our first prize winner, the author of the first spot you heard, is Amisha Ahuya, grade seven, Lawrence Middle School in Lawrence. Let me now ask the winners in grades nine and 10 to come forward. A little attrition in this category this morning, so as you will see, uh, two of our prize winners are not with us, but we certainly will make sure that they get their, uh, their prizes. I do want to um, begin with the uh, honorable mention. Uh, uh, Teresa Bayer is one of the students who is not here today, uh, so let me begin with uh, Manisha uh, Bhattacharya, a 10th grader at West Windsor Plainsboro High School South in West Windsor. The next of our uh, honorable mention winners uh, this year was also a prize winner last year, and that is uh, Julian Fung, a 10th grader at West Windsor Plainsboro High School South in West Windsor. Our final honorable mention winner is on this stage for the sixth consecutive year. Three years as a winner in the poster contest, paving the way for his sister, who was up here just moments ago. 
and now three years in the essay contest. He now has won a total of three honorable mentions and three first prizes. Uh, Christian, he has grade nine, South Brunswick High School in South Brunswick. As you may have noticed from your programs, we received many excellent entries this year from Villa Victoria Academy. Our second prize winner, uh, also not here today, is Caitlin Murray, a 10th grader at Villa Victoria. But our first prize winner, who happily is here today, is Ellen Kraft, a 9th grader, also at Villa Victoria. And finally, let me ask the winners in grades 11 and 12 to come forward. Again, I'll begin with honorable mention. First, uh, Eric Beam, a 12th grader at West Windsor Plainsboro High School North in West Windsor. Next, Corey McCullough, a 12th grader at Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. Uh, Alexandra uh, Pinchuk, an 11th grader at Stewart, is not here. Um, but the next, uh, uh, who is here, uh, Catherine Schmidt, grade 12, Stewart Country Day School, Princeton. And Anna uh, Stetsovskaya, uh, another 12th grader from West Windsor Plainsboro High School, South in West Windsor, also could not be here. Uh, that brings us to our second prize winner, um, who is Tony Manella, a 12th grader at West Windsor Plainsboro High School North in West Windsor. Our final winner, an honorable mention last year as a 10th grader, returns this year as our first prize winner as an 11th grader, uh, Leslie Hart, Stewart Country Day School in Princeton. So, as you can see from your programs, we had many excellent entries even beyond those we could recognize with prizes. Let me ask you to join in one final round of applause for all of our winners. We hope to see... We hope to see many of you back again on this stage and to hear your work on the radio or see it along the highways in future years. Thank you. I'd like to introduce Sheena Elvington, who will introduce Professor Glaude. 
Sheena is a junior at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, and she's already won a number of academic honors, including the Harold T. Shapiro Prize for Academic Excellence. She's also a gifted campus leader and currently serves as president of the Black Student Union. She's a young woman of whom we're enormously proud and of whom we look forward to watching her career with great anticipation. Sheena? Good afternoon and welcome. It is my pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker to you. Professor Eddie Gloud is currently an Associate Professor of Religion and African American Studies here at Princeton. A graduate of Morehouse College, Professor Gloud went on to earn a Master's Degree in African American Studies at Temple University and both a Master's and Doctoral Degree in Religion from Princeton. His academic appointments and honors have included Chair of the Department of Religion at Bowdoin College, Visiting Professor of Religion and Black Studies at Amherst College, Visiting Scholar in African American Studies at Harvard, and Carpenter Fellow at Vanderbilt University. Professor Glad recently received the William Sanders Scarborough Prize from the Modern Language Association of America for his work, Exodus, Religion, Race, and Nation in the Early 19th Century Black America. This prize recognizes outstanding scholarly study in African-American culture and literature. Without further ado, I present Professor Glad to you. Um, let's give another round of applause for all of those wonderful participants in the essay and poster contest. This is absolutely amazing. And let's give another round of applause for Kasim. You guys are absolutely amazing. Let's me know that everything is all right. I want to thank um, Bob Durkee for making this opportunity possible for me. I want to thank Joanne for calling and make sure we got my title right. I want to thank Shana for that generous introduction. I want to thank Amy Gutman for being here. I want to thank former President Goen for being here. I want to thank President Tillman for her leadership, her vision, for ushering in this new age at this prestigious place. So thank you, and for making me possible, for being here at this prestigious place. I want to acknowledge all my friends and colleagues and my wife and my son, Langston. This is his first time ever hearing me speak, so I'm a bit nervous. <laughs> He's going to critique me. Well, let's get into the meat of this talk. Exactly one year before he was struck down by an assassin's bullet, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered an historic address on the Vietnam War. He was well aware of the potential consequences for his remarks. Just two years earlier, in August of 1965, speaking at the annual convention of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, King called for an end to the war 
and urged America to deploy its forces to help rebuild some of the villages which had been destroyed. King was roundly criticized by allies within the civil rights movement for linking the struggle with international concerns. The Cold War had effectively left little room for the internationalism that defined African-American politics through the mid-1940s. Any effort to connect the civil rights struggle with U.S. foreign policy was taboo. And most believed the fragile coalition of forces that sustained what was now a fledgling movement would be jeopardized by such a position. In light of these concerns, King would wait two years before fully addressing the Vietnam crisis. In the interim, he saw the physical and spiritual destruction of the war. And he witnessed the erosion of democratic life at home. Commenting on the effort to deny Julian Bond his state legislative seat in Georgia because of Bond's opposition to the war, King wrote that never before had the right to question our foreign policy been so severely thwarted. He went on to say that our nation was, quote, approaching a dangerous totalitarian periphery where dissent becomes synonymous with disloyalty, end quote. King saw Vietnamese babies in mangled bodies, dead Vietnamese babies in mangled bodies. He saw broken men return home. He saw a nation whose soul was truly in need. King would later say, if America's soul becomes totally poisoned, part of the autopsy must read Vietnam. So he had to speak. And his words are too important to let pass on this day. King noted that Vietnam was, quote, but a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit, and a radical revolution of values was required to save the nation. In the pulpit of Riverside Church, King preached, quote, I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. King went on to say that a true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside. But that will only be an initial act. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It is not haphazard and superficial. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. King noted the Western arrogance, listen at this now, 
the Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach to others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hands on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just. We ought to remember King's words during these trying times because our own moment requires a similar prophetic witness. But too often this holiday and King's legacy are thought of as simply a moment in our past, as a time when the nation had not quite gotten it right. In the context of this yearly ritual, what is the content of King's vision? The meaning of his call to us to struggle for justice. Now, what I want to do in this brief time we have together is threefold. I'm an academic, so I have to lay out what I'm going to do. All right? First, I want to call your attention to the complexity of King's evolving vision and suggest that his dream requires much more of us than simply an acknowledgement of the evil of racism. Second, I hope it becomes clear that I understand this holiday as much more than a celebration of the personality of King. It is a time for the nation to reflect on the past and present realities of racial injustice to in effect memorialize a tradition of struggle and a nation fundamentally shaped by it. Lastly, I want to suggest that King's words and the movement he represents disclose for us that our nation is an unfinished experiment in democracy. That much work is required if we are to achieve, as James Baldwin wrote, our country. Now, no other holiday on our nation's commemorative calendar offers the opportunity to reflect on the shortcomings of American democracy, like the celebration of the life of Martin Luther King, Jr. King gave his life to rid America of the racism that has crippled the nation since its inception. His struggle for civil rights was inextricably bound up with the horror of slavery, the broken promises of reconstruction, and the nightmare that was Jim Crow. To celebrate King's life, then, is to confront the tragic realities of our nation's racial past and present. His was a prophetic witness, a call to the nation to live out the true meaning of its creed. A national holiday in his honor ought to be a reminder of the incompleteness and fragility of our democracy, not a celebration of American triumphalism. And in these times of war and hubris, Americans need to be reminded of just how fragile and fallen we are. Now, Corrine's career can be divided into two major periods. The first begins with the Montgomery boycott in 1955 and ends with the march from Selma to Montgomery in 1965. The second period starts with the Selma march and ends with his murder in Memphis in 1968. King's vision was grounded in the dissenting tradition of America, that tradition of public exhortation which joined social criticism to moral renewal, calling America back to its founding ideals of democracy, freedom, and equality. King stands then in that tradition which goes all the way back to John Winthrop's famous sermon in 1630, a model of Christian charity. 
Winthrop, the leader of the expedition to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, described in his sermon the covenantal obligations to God of those who were making the journey across the Atlantic. Here, obligation to God was the basis for a corporate identity. Because through their figural participation in the biblical narrative, right, the Puritans in effect became the biblical antitypes of ancient Israel, a nation persecuted by the enemies of God. Their history then was rhetorically elevated and transformed into biblical drama. Their transatlantic voyage interpreted as a new exodus. Their mission as an errand in the wilderness and their role as that of a chosen people. Winthrop even paraphrased at the conclusion of his sermon, Moses' last instructions to Israel. Listen to this. Beloved, there is now set before us life and good, death and evil, in that we are commanded this day to the Lord our God and to love one another, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his ordinances and his laws and the articles of our covenant with him that we may live and be multiplied and that the Lord our God may bless us in the land where we go to possess it. But if our hearts shall turn away so that we will not obey, but shall be seduced and worship other gods, worship our pleasures and prophets, and serve them, it is propounded unto this day we shall surely perish out of the good land whether we pass over this vast sea to possess it. Now here Winthrop exhorted the faithful to recognize that their success and eventually America's success was contingent upon their obligations to God. If, if they turned their backs on God, then they would suffer the consequences and lose the bounty that was this new land. Now King stands in this tradition of the American Jeremiah, but with the difference. His was an American Jeremiah transformed by the prophetic black church tradition. King's vision was nurtured in the black church, an institution which sustained the people in spite of the hardships of American slavery and apartheid. This institution called forth the black public and provided languages for political argument, the suffering servant, a grace senate piety, a concern with human fallenness, rituals of conversion, a preoccupation with evil, all are preoccupations of African-American religious life and consequently tools in black political life. King's message gave voice to that haunting duality at the center of a black religious imagination, a sentiment that was both black and American. This black Jeremiah this blue note of the American, American dissenting tradition held that America could not achieve its rightful place until it reconciled itself to its darker citizens. King echoed this view in his Vietnam address in which he, quote, affirmed the conviction that America would never be free or saved from itself unless the descendants of its slaves were loosed completely from the shackles they still wear, end quote. King saw in the suffering of black people an answer to the evil of racism, 
The answer was contained in the idea of the suffering servant whose suffering was not due to something that he had done, but was vicarious and redemptive. As King argued, quote, through the servant's suffering, knowledge of God was spread to the unbelieving Gentile. And those unbelievers, seeing that this suffering servant was innocent, would become conscious of themselves and thereby redeemed. The nation would be healed by his wounds. Suffering as redemptive, in King's view, transformed the sufferer and the oppressor. It was based in agape, an unconditional love of the neighbor, regardless of worth and merit, and grounded in the confidence that God was active in history. As he urged African Americans to change this nation, King saw the power in their suffering. Black folks would, quote, imbue our nation with the ideals of a higher and nobler order. They, in dealing with their particular dilemma, King noted, would challenge the nation to deal with its larger dilemma. King likened the struggle for civil rights then as one for the soul of America. Racism and poverty were evils that threatened the so-called Redeemer Nation. His message was one of turning back to the ideals of the nation, a recognition of crisis and national declension. That's what links him to John Winthrop, right? But he saw in the crisis possibility. As he stated, every crisis has both its dangers and opportunities that can either spell salvation or doom. His was an abiding faith in the promises of our democracy, colored by the brutal realities of America's past and present. Now, of course, King had its moments of doubts when the vicious racist threatened his family. When he received that phone call late at night and an angry voice said, Listen, nigga, we've taken all we want from you. Before next week, you'll be sorry you ever came to Montgomery. And King in the midnight hour cried out, I'm here taking a stand for what I believe is right. But now I'm afraid. I'm at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. What? What brought you to the brink of despair, Martin? What, what took you to that kitchen table in the midnight hour? Was it the darkness of human beings, their capacity for evil? How did you hold off the temptation of doubt? King said he heard the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. King witnessed this blessed assurance until the day he died. Now, between 1955 and 1965, King marshaled the best of the American dissenting tradition and the black prophetic church tradition. He marshaled this to achieve traditional civil rights for black Americans. Yet the movement's relative success, that is the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, 
and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, accentuated for King what needed to be done before the poor, the powerless, and the racially disadvantaged could begin to achieve equality. The events of the later 60s disturbed him. Racial uprisings exploded in 1965 and consumed the nation for the next three years. The Vietnam War divided America, and his own opposition to the war divided the traditional civil rights coalition. King increasingly was aware of the fact that America was on the verge of destruction and, quote, felt more strongly than ever a prophetic duty to warn America against its follies. But by late 1965, Americans were not so willing to listen to King's social prophecy. Now, y'all hold on for a minute now. We're going we're gonna to give, it's going to come together. Y'all going to talk back to me in a minute, right? Now, in spite of the success of the movement, America was still poisoned by racism, a sickness, King noted, as native to our soil as pine trees, sagebrush, and buffalo grass. He said the price of change up to this moment had been cheap. King warned for, quote, it cost very little and required no redistribution of wealth to desegregate southern restrooms and lunch counters. But the sickness of the nation's soul required much more. It necessitated structural change. King continued to believe that the spirit of democracy would overcome the evils of racism and economic exploitation. But a genuine transformation had to occur. America had to be born again. As he wrote in Where Do We Go From Here? We must honestly admit, now listen to him. You see, y'all don't listen, y'all don't hear this about King too often. We must honestly admit that capitalism has often left a gulf between superfluous wealth and abject poverty, has created conditions permitting necessities to be taken from the many to give luxuries to the few, and has encouraged small-hearted men to become cold and consciousless, so that like dives before Lazarus, they are unmoved by suffering, poverty-stricken humanity. What, what does this mean in this new gilded age? Uh, unimaginable wealth and unimaginable poverty. Since 1986, King has been enshrined in the pantheon of American civil religion, ironically by that Hollywood actor that he despised. His life and the movement he was a part of stand as examples of, at least for some, American exceptionalism and of how our democracy works. We have come to see that race should not matter in our dealings with our fellow citizens and that we should reward one another on the basis of merit. King held the view that the freedoms and liberties we enjoy ought to enable us, as Walt Whitman suggested, to stand and start without humiliation, to have the road cleared to commence the grand experiment of development. Indeed, King's dream has become a part of the American dream, and his life has become an example to all Americans of the unfettered possibility that is this nation. But what happens 
to King's prophetic witness when we celebrate Him in this way? What happens to the lessons of the nation's tragic racial past? How are we to grasp the fact that our democracy is always in process, never truly complete, if we congratulate ourselves on a job well done when so much more needs to be addressed? Now, to be sure, America has come a long way since the Civil Rights Movement. Jim Crow segregation is no more. There is a growing African-American middle class. African-Americans are in positions of national leadership, and public sanction of racially insensitive remarks can be swift and effective. The recent demise of Senator Trent Lott is a great example of this. But King's legacy directs us to bear witness to the enduring problems that threaten our form of living, to judge our current practices in light of America's founding ideals of democracy and freedom. A glance around the country reveals that all is not well. We are in the midst of corporate scandal. Economic insecurity has gripped the nation while we continue to witness the transfer of wealth upward. We're running deficits in democracy. An education and health care crisis threaten the generation of children. We notice but say little of a booming business of prisons, and the war drums continue to play. Where are the prophetic voices on this day? Who speaks for the least of these in a country of unimagined abundance? One would expect the immediate inheritors of King to be on the front line in this regard. But African-American leadership has suffered from a fatigue of imagination and a dwindling supply of courage. Talk back to me. All right. Many have become court prophets, right? They fail to address innovatively the peculiar problems of today, and perhaps because they walk the corridors of power, they often fail to speak truth to power. Where are the prophetic voices that turn our attention to the vulnerability of our democracy, not because of a terrorist cell, but because of our fears and prejudices? To respond to the terrorist threat by restricting the freedoms and liberties we now enjoy is anti-democratic and presents a clear and present danger to the welfare of our democracy. We mustn't... Right? We must not allow the ugliness of anti-democratic sentiment to be smuggled in under the cover of our indignation and to defile our cherished ideals of an open, free, and democratic society. We must say to our nation's arrogance, no. As King noted, quote, when in this day I see the leaders of nations Again, talking peace while preparing for war, I take fearful pause. We should all take fearful pause and tremble for our world. This national holiday, then, can serve two purposes. I'm coming to a close. First, it can be our national commemoration of the tragedy of our racial past. 
King's dream called attention to the enduring power of our principles and revealed his abiding faith in our nation's capacity to live up to those principles. But he saw a not-so-hidden defect, what he called a congenital deformity that crippled the nation. His dream unmasked America's original sin. And we must be mindful of the sin of racism as we move forward into the future. What kind of story do we want to tell our children? What kind of story do I want to tell my little boy? How do we relate to them the price of freedom? The price of this ticket? Tell them of the strange fruit that dangled from the trees of this nation. Of the broken souls left to ponder colors because this world dirtied them so that they didn't like themselves anymore. What kind of story do we want to tell our children? Of the moans and groans of our tragedies and triumphs. Of the courage and undying love of those who risked everything to make this moment right here possible. A courage that, in spite of racism, gave us the existential armor to march on and love you anyway. And to demand that the nation simply live up to what it put on paper. What kind of story do we want to tell? Actually. Only thing we can say is just tell the story. Tell the story. Our task is certainly not done. Second, this holiday can remind us that our democracy is incomplete. That our form of associated living stands as an ideal towards which we strive and perhaps will never achieve. What better way to celebrate King's prophetic witness than to remember that hubris darkens the soul and blinds us to a world in need. If this holiday doesn't remind us of our races past and present, if this holiday doesn't orient us to work for democracy amid crippling greed and unimaginable arrogance, then I'm reminded of the words of the prophet Amos. I hate and despise your feasts, and I will take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Yea, though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meal offerings, I will not accept them. But let justice well up as waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. Thank you.
Thank you, Professor Glad, for a challenge well-spoken and for something for us to think about as we go on about completing the celebrations of this day and every day as we move forward trying to make Dr. King's dream a reality. Thank you all for coming. I want to actually ask Chasm to come back to the stage. They're going to play for us as we leave the ceremony today, thinking about what Dr. King's message then meant to us, and it's clear, clairvoyant, and meanings for us even today, as spoken to us so profoundly by Professor Glad. And now, again, Chasm. Good evening. Good afternoon, sorry. Yeah, I keep having a little time lapse. Um, I must say you all have given us a very difficult job because that is a very tough act to follow. But um, what I would like to say though is um, I'm glad to be here. I, I was very pleased to be sitting, seated, seated in the audience to hear that speech. It was wonderful. I'd like to have us give him a round of applause again. But me too and our band, our organization, we can boast as well. We have been in existence for 20 years now. We are celebrating our 20-year anniversary, founded in 1983. And 90% of our members have all graduated high school, and 85% of those have all went on to college and have succeeded well. Thank you very much. We're going to do a couple more numbers for you, um, first one being when the saints go marching in, and I'm not too sure what else we're going to unplay, but it'll be nice. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day.